You are listening to Unity Unmuted, and we're glad you're here. Unity Unmuted is an audio exploration of what it means to conceive of, create, and sustain a union in America today. We share struggles, successes, and personal stories from our membership and from our fellow union members across the country to share the power of solidarity. This is episode one. We're looking back at where it all started. What was the spark behind the fire that's still burning in the Emerson Staff Union? In this episode, we talked with a few of our founding members, the ones who were present at the very birth of the idea of the Emerson Staff Union. Shailen Hogan is the Graduate Studies Program Chair at Emerson College. She's also the Chapter Vice Chair of the Emerson Union and Secretary Treasurer of SEIU Local 888, our parent union. So my journey with the Emerson Staff Union started in my office on the 10th floor of the Anson Building. It was a hard day for the WLP staff. There were two of us. We felt very outnumbered and tired. And John Albert Mosley came upstairs from the ninth floor and said, there's a solution to this. We unionize. And we laughed and we were like, what are you talking about, you crazy person? And he sort of waxed poetically on the benefits of a unified voice of people working together. And I thought to myself initially, I don't know, my life isn't that bad. Like that seems like a really extreme reaction to one bad day on on the job. And the more that I talked to people about what their daily lives were in the office and on campus and off campus when their supervisors were texting them at midnight or refusing to let them have a day off when they were sick, I realized, nope, this is something we need to do. Like this isn't just for me, this is for everybody. To your knowledge, Was that John Albert's first conversation with anybody on campus regarding unionizing? My understanding is that John Albert and Anna Fetter have been talking about union efforts in general and what it would do for our campus. We had the first informational meeting that was like broad membership. And honestly, at the time, when I say membership, it was like 10 people. And we went to the now sadly defunct Jacob Worth And we had soda because when you're unionizing, organizers cannot procure liquor. It's against the law. It's, it can lead to too much persuasion. So we had some appetizers and some soda and we all signed the paper with our intent. And once you sign that paper the first time, you are officially engaged in union activity and you are federally protected from recourse. So I remember that being like a really big deal. Um, And that was only maybe a week or two after that first conversation with John Albert. From there, things began to build for Shailen, John Albert, and Anna, and the rest of the team, but they never lost sight of their main priority, all of us. It's not a line and it's not cheesy when we say things like, together we win and with one voice we're stronger. Those are absolutely true things that I've witnessed in action when we were at the table negotiating our first contract, which took um, an exceptionally long time, we noticed that when we showed up as a group, the, the college listened to us. You know, you could have, the, we had a large bargaining team anyway. It's about 15 or 20 people, which is enormous, honestly, for um, a typical negotiation. But we wanted representation from all areas. And that was enough to get a lot accomplished. But when we got to sticking points, 
and we put out calls to the membership and said, listen, there's 160 of us and they're treating us like there's two of us with a problem. We need you to show up. People showed up and not only did they show up, but the college listened when they did. Um, and I think that's huge. Even though certain issues were not major issues for some individuals, I certainly was not that concerned about retirement. I'm, I'm on the younger side. I plan to work until I die at my desk so that I can haunt people. That's my plan. Uh, <laughs> so when we were working on the retirement plan, uh, part of the, the CBA, and things sort of were getting stilted, I still showed up because I knew my colleagues were going to retire. And similarly, when we were getting to sticking points on parental leave, colleagues who either have no children, no plans to have children or adult children still showed up for me. And, you know, having each other's back is so powerful. Let's talk about issues. You mentioned you were having a tough day and that's where, you know, your sort of spark came once John Albert kind of lit it. What were the initial issues that you and John Albert and, and Anna and whomever else early on, you know, what, what galvanized this bargaining unit most of all? Equity as it pertained to wages, treatment, and policies. I think that's really been the pillar from from day one. We saw people who were being treated as lesser either because of their race, their gender, or no reason that we were able to discern. We knew that there were people who we work with who've been at the college for 25 years getting paid less than someone getting hired in, in the first day. I know when I went on my maternity leave, my pay structure for time off was significantly different from Nicole, who was in the office next to me. And it was really, you know, whoever you happened to meet in HR that day, you got a different deal. And that's not right or fair. You know, the, the original unions in Lowell were not just a, a, a feminist uh, in hindsight movement, but they were women only. Do you see the unionization at Emerson or in higher ed in general as a feminist movement as well? I think the feminist movement is an equity movement. And as a result of that, yes, that's what unions seek. Equity for everybody. Estelle Tickton is the administrative assistant to the chair of the Com Sciences and Disorders program at Emerson. She has always been a passionate organizer and she's one of the prime engines behind the development of our union. Can you just start by telling me where the story of your relationship to the Emerson Staff Union began? Actually began with John Albert Mosley. I was sitting in the audience at a Bright Lights filming. It was an adaptation of a real-life labor union um, story, and he and Anna Fader, who started, started this whole thing rolling, Afterwards, after the film showing, there was a question and answer, and I think maybe my question made them think that I might be someone who would be open to joining the union. They touched base with me after the filming, and then we had a longer meeting in a coffee shop off campus. I remember saying to John Albert that I'm really with you here, I really would support the union, but I'm so overbooked, I don't have time to do anything I apologize, but I can't really do any work for you, but I will vote for it. And that was like the last thing before I became like a major organizer <laughs> and then on the negotiating committee um, and still still, still active. So I got kind of got the ball rolling and I couldn't stop. I felt like I didn't have the time, but at the same time, it the more I talked to them and the more I started talking to other people, 
it felt like a more urgent action was needed than I had originally thought. And I think this is true of a lot of people who were involved. You know, we were in our own little silos before, and no one was talking to each other, and no one knew what was going on at the other end of the campus. And because I was in such a great department where I know complaints about my supervisors, my colleagues, and and the way things were going there, it wasn't until I started to hear more of the outrageous stories across campus, which I, you know, it's, it's not that I was so naive before that I totally bought into, you know, Emerson's wonderful reputation and, and mission statements and, and, and all of that. But I think until I heard other people's stories, I didn't realize what a gap there was between the, the walk and the talk. And of course, the, the next question would be, how do you make the transition from saying I'm too busy to a major force behind the organization, which is certainly the impression that I've always had of you since, you know, the first uh, whispers about a union that, that made their way into my ears. So it was partly hearing from those people. It was partly also that while I didn't have a, a problem with my immediate department, I was not happy with my interactions with HR and the larger, the upper administration in terms of specifically, I didn't feel that my job, what I actually did in my job matched what they had graded me at and what was listed in my job description. And even with the support of my supervisor and going through all of HR's, all the hoops and and the procedures that they said you should go to, It wasn't even just that I didn't succeed in getting interviewed even. It was I didn't get a response for months. My supervisor, my chair, tried to get a response, and it took him a long time to even get one email saying it was denied. No explanation, just denied. And then trying for weeks to get some detail and a real response, and it was not a satisfactory response. And so... Between that and then hearing other people's stories, I really, it, it it became apparent to me how much there was a gap between the upper administration and, and what staff was experiencing. People who had been here for 20, 25 years who were making less than people who were just hired within a year or so, doing the same job or similar. And it's because they couldn't recruit people at that level, but the heck with the people who were already here and not getting paid enough. Or merit pay, which if you're lucky like I was, that you get along well with your manager and you're given a decent percentage, but there are people whose work was still good, but just had personality conflicts with a manager and they would get no or you know half a percent or a one percent raise, not even cost of living. I had heard of several people I knew of who were just visited at their desk and just told suddenly, don't come back on Monday. I mean, there were the the disappeared, we called them, who without explanation, without any buildup and warnings of you're not doing as well as you should be or you violated something, they had no warning and they were just told, don't come back. So many, many, you know, many issues like this. I felt insulted by the administration Around that time, the provost, Michelle Whalen, had made a speech. She said something like, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was something like, the faculty are the brain and the students are the heart of Emerson College. And hello, so what are the staff? (laughs) 
because staff never get mentioned, never get included in things, um, whether it's even a shout out or or included in, in policy making or you know anything that relates to us. So I had said we had put together a pamphlet during our union organizing, and it's like, well, Michela might say the faculty are the brains and students are the heart, but the staff is the skeleton. We're the structure that holds up this entire body and allows it to function, and we are being ignored and not treated right. And and the more I talked to people, the more I also felt this great connection where, again, I had been in a silo and I loved my colleagues in my department, but all of a sudden I felt part of something larger. And as the group grew, I was just meeting people from all across the college who who have become friends now. And, and it's been one of the best experiences here to to be working with all these great people. We have great staff at this college and they really need to be recognized and and treated well. Ilona Yukayev is an instructional technologist at Emerson College. Her vocal, outspoken presence in the union belies the fact that this is her first ever union experience. Please tell me, Ilona, where the story of your relationship to the Emerson staff union began. A few months after I was hired, we had a vote for the union. I didn't know anything about unions, but I, I voted yes. And um, I was uh, asked to be on the negotiation committee. So I joined and uh, almost two years later, we had our first contract. What was the process of negotiation like for you? Had you ever done that before? I have never done any type of negotiations before. I've never even negotiated uh, my rent or never been able to negotiate a salary successfully, nothing. I was asked to join because every department at Emerson uh, asked to vote for a member to represent them at the table. And nobody in my department wanted to be that person. Uh, So I was that person. What were the things that really got us fired up as as, as a potential union and then as a nascent union? The moment was in October of 2017. And we've already been, we, we expect it to be done by then. First contracts take a long time, about a year. We're already past year. And we gave them a complete package in July of 2017 of everything we're asking for, expecting them to get back to us with something. And they didn't for three months. And we were waiting patiently because one, we're nice people. The, the main reason is we thought they were taking us seriously. We thought they're really crunching the numbers and trying to meet us. Um, halfway because, you know, the reason the union was formed because was because many years of uh, staff being ignored and uh, undercompensated and unheard. So we're like, okay, they want to finish this up. They're going to come back to us. They're going to be serious. So mid-October, we get back, we get a one-page response. <laughs> no, it was two pages stapled <laughs> to our entire financial proposal. That didn't include any of the benefits. It was just a salary. It just responded to one part of it. And their response was a bullshit response. The response was to offer us less than what we're already getting. And it was such a low ball offer. Everybody was, everybody was kind of stunned. And slowly people started expressing their frustration in a very heartfelt way. They were like, I don't understand like why you're not taking us seriously. You know, I've worked at this college for this many years. I get paid this much. I haven't seen a raise for this many years, you know. So the stories came, came, you know, came up at the table. And the people across the table from us 
were nodding empathetically, but also shrugging in a sense. And, and, I, and I realized, I was like, oh, they're completely not taking us seriously. And that was kind of a, an important moment because I think most of us didn't know we were supposed to be angry in this moment because we were so shocked. We were like, what is happening? Do they really not have any money? Can they really not help us out here? And I think because most of us thought because we have a union now that we have a voice and they have to hear us because if they don't hear us, we can do actions. But that's not how it works. You actually have to do the actions to remind them that you can do actions. Mostly they'll sit there being like, okay, some unions do stuff and some unions don't do things. So in that moment, that was a turning point. We saw the effects at the table. You did an action and then suddenly the tone changed at the table and they gave us something. That's when I realized that like when you have a union, what you have is a structure to work within. It's more like we voted and now we're legally protected to do these actions that will put pressure on them. And then they listen to us. And the next seven months, we've done a lot of actions and we saw a lot of progress. We're able to get raises. There were good raises. We're able to get more benefits. We were able to extend the parental leave policy. There are a lot of wins. The reason we were able to get those wins is because we had the capacity. And the capacity is is completely measured entirely in our members' willingness to show up and support us at the table. If nobody wanted to do anything, if people were like, just take whatever, you wouldn't get anything. But because we had a large group of people who were ups as upset as we were on their behalf, because we were negotiating for their salaries and we're willing to show up for actions, that's how we got where we were. You know, when we first started meeting folks trying to, you know, little by little doing one-on-one -on -one or small meetings, a lot of people, more than I had expected, were afraid of meeting and wanted to make sure we were far enough off campus that, you know, a manager wasn't going to see them. And it's like, I'm, I feel so comfortable in my department. I can't believe that from, it varied so much from department to department about how, safe people felt and, and the atmosphere in their departments and the way people were treated was a major issue. Inconsistency and unfairness of how people were graded and paid. The big thing, a really big thing was merit pay. And that was also the biggest sticking point when we went finally got the union and went into negotiations. And that was like the last thing that we were holding out. We were absolutely not budging on that. And they were absolutely not budging on that. Ultimately, we finally won because that just felt like, especially in this area where the cost of living is so expensive, they all needed to be making a, a living. At one point, I had two part-time jobs, freelance jobs on top of this job. And I was sleeping on the couch in my apartment because I could only afford one bedroom and, I, and my son needed his own space. So for people not to be able to afford to, you know, to work here just was so unfair. So that was a big thing. Parental leave policies was another big thing that it varied so much. You'd go, people would go to HR and get totally different stories. And there was not one consistent parental leave policy. When you work in academia, because, um, you know, we spend a lot of our days in committees and drafting proposals together and working together, people have the impression that they have a true voice in shaping policy, in shaping the way the college, you know, where the college is heading. And it's not. I mean, I think that's kind of, uh, that's kind of like the lie of uh, neoliberalism, the lie of like this 
the individual can make a difference because, you know, if you have the right idea, the right idea will get picked up and it won't, it won't. At the end of the day, the right idea is the idea of the people who are in power. And I see, and, and what I see in my organizing conversations is a lot of people who have a fantastic direct supervisor who hears them out, but, you know, when they're underpaid, can't do nothing for them. A middle manager can do nothing for them. Hear them out, feel bad about it. But, you know, if they go to their manager and their manager and they'd be like, maybe we should give them more money. And they say, no, that's the end of the story. Oh, we don't have the money. We don't have the money. And then when you organize and what we've seen is that years of being told there's no money, there's no money, there's no money. Then start a negotiation as a union. There's no money. Then you start doing collective action and suddenly money appears because that's when you really partake in the power. Uh, and finally, uh, advice for schools or any organization or group that might be looking to unionize. My first piece of advice is do it. Do not hesitate. Do not question yourself. It's only going to benefit you. My second piece of advice is find another union and ask them to show you what they've done. And I guess the third would be find your patient pants. When we started organizing, I was not pregnant. By the time we finished our contract, my son was potty trained just for the first contract. It's a long haul. You got to, you know, we talk about marathon, not a sprint. We're about facing people who do not know who we are as a union. They do not know they cannot jerk us around. That, you know, if they do they will be stubborn, that they will not break us. Because that's what, you know, the previous leadership tried to do. They tried to break us through negotiations and they failed. And especially with a new law firm that is union busting, you know, they, they, might, they might fight us hard on every point. So what I'm hoping for is to see more and more people involved in the process, both in negotiations and the organizing part. My message to our members is show up. Show up for actions, show up, participate, have your voice heard, it makes a difference. And when you'll see, if you do it and you see that it makes a difference, it's just like try it because I know a lot of us just don't believe it does. I think a lot of people, like I know when I joined, I was like, ah, somebody has to, so I'll do it. It's the greatest educational experience to date in my life. Thank you for listening. We hope you will join us in future episodes as we continue to explore what it means to come together for the common good. Unity Unmuted is a loud, proud production of the Emerson Staff Union. Original music by Half-Hearted Attack. Research assistance from Diana Potter and Dan Crocker. Technical support from Audrey Park and Rachel Levin. Homer Sorabi keeps us all together. I'm your host, Tim Douglas. Tim Douglas.